Greetings friends, my name is Jeremy Walker and this is From the Heart of Spurgeon, a podcast from Media Gratii in which we're trying to read through and survey particular sermons by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a preacher who knew how to preach Christ and him crucified. And Christ crucified is both the theme and the title of the sermon that we're considering today. It's numbers 7 and 8 in the New Park Street Pulpit, Volume 1. Now, why is it two sermons in the book when it's actually only one sermon on the page? I suspect it's because of its length. This is about 8,500 words, whereas more of the regular sermons are about six to 7,000 words. So somewhere either in the preaching or in the editing afterwards, this sermon developed and grew and expanded, and so it takes up these two slots in the record. Spurgeon's text is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. But we preach Christ crucified, Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. How then does Spurgeon approach his text in this sermon? Well, he begins with an assault upon fallen human reason. And he asks, in essence, what reason has truly accomplished? What has it done in the world? And his answer is, it has accomplished nothing of any real lasting value, but it has produced much vileness and ugliness, no true worship of God. And the counterpoint then to human wisdom is to preach divine truth, to preach Christ and him crucified. Now, Spurgeon loves this theme. And one of the things he often does when he addresses this kind of topic is to tell us what preaching Christ really means. And he does so here. He, first of all, tells us negatively that it's not giving you a batch of philosophy. It's not leaving out the cardinal doctrines of the word of God and preaching what he calls a religion all a mist and a haze without any definite truths. And it's certainly not a sermon which has no mention of Christ's name or no space for the Holy Spirit's work. Now, for Spurgeon, he says it's preaching Calvinism. He says it's just a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. He says we have to preach justification by faith without works, a sovereign God dispensing grace freely an electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah, based upon the peculiar or particular redemption which Christ made for his elect and chosen people, and one which involves all those who are called being kept until the very end. The gospel of the Bible is that gospel. And so he wants us to understand what's taking place when the Apostle Paul preached there, as he mentions it in the first letter to the Corinthians. And he's got three headings. This is, again, classic Spurgeon. It's not the only number he has, but he seems to have that so-called golden hammer. He taps a text and it falls into three pieces. His headings. First, a gospel rejected. Second, a gospel triumphant. And third, a gospel admired. When he looks at the gospel rejected, he's looking at the basic responses to the preaching 
of a crucified Christ in the fashion that he's just described. And he takes the divisions that the text suggests. To the Jews, it is a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. And he's looking at these two groups as not just representative of the congregation or the audience in the apostles' time, but really as representative of all the hearers of the gospel down through the ages. And so he introduces to us these two gentlemen, and you again begin to feel something of the vividness of Spurgeon's approach, the humanity of it, that these are not just two uh, abstract ideas. He wants to talk to you about particular people. And so he identifies, first of all, the Jew to whom the gospel is a stumbling block, a respectable man with all formal religion concentrated in his person. Now, he doesn't seem to pick up the language of the previous verse where it says that Jews seek a sign. He concentrates more on the fact that the the Jew in the scriptural sense here is somebody who rests upon their outward religion. And to such a one, Christ and him crucified is going to be an offence, a stumbling block. He also talks about the people who are thoroughly orthodox in their sentiments. They don't think anything of forms and ceremonies. They're not so bothered about outward religion, but they rest upon a system of doctrine which has never really penetrated to their souls. This is the person who knows almost everything in the dark attic of the head where his religion has taken up its abode, but he has a best parlour down in his heart, but his religion never goes there. That is shut against it. His heart is possessed of something other than Jesus Christ. And so the Jew here in Spurgeon's uh, taxonomy of the soul is someone who is taken up only with uh, formal or external religion. It lives in his uh, outer man, it lives in his mind alone, but it doesn't grip his soul. He is offended by the idea of a crucified Christ. And now he turns to a different person, the Greek, and he wants us to see here somebody who appreciates eloquence, likes a smart saying and a quaint expression, always reading the latest book. He's a Greek, and to him the gospel is is foolishness. There's no real distinction for him. They like all religions or no religions. There's no truth, really. There's nothing that is fixed and final. To the the Greek, the person who's convinced and persuaded is a bigot. This is human wisdom. Now, these are the two classes who reject the gospel. They have no regard for it, no desire for it, and no delight in it. But Spurgeon, having spoken thus far upon the gospel rejected, turns secondly to a brief discourse on the gospel triumphant. And here is the the contrast that he brings in. Yes, there are some who despise and reject and scorn the gospel, but the Holy Ghost does not strive in vain. He's pointing now to those sovereign acts of God by which a sinner is brought to him. And he is absolutely confident, as we all should be, that the work of the gospel goes on despite the rejection of it by sinful men. 
and he roots his confidence, this triumph of the gospel, in the work of the Holy Spirit to call people to God. It is God's call by the Spirit through the Word of God, an effectual call. And God uses his ministers to bring this word to bear under the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's just the kind of thing that Spurgeon has done that God uses. Spurgeon says God gives his ministers a brush and shows them how to use it in painting lifelike portraits, and thus the sinner hears the special call. So Spurgeon's anticipation is that as he paints these two portraits of these two gentlemen, the the Jew as a, a representative of a certain kind of religious person, the Greek as a representative of a certain kind perhaps of a more secular person, the one to whom the gospel is a stumbling block, the one to whom it is foolishness, the one who prefers his own notions of what truth might be to God's, the Jew who prefers his own notion of what power and effectiveness in religion might be to God. And his expectation is that as he preaches, those who hear him are going to be looking into the mirror of God's word and recognizing in the portrait of the Jew or the Greek a picture of themselves. And they're to be convinced then of their sin against God in despising his power and his wisdom. And he's really quite brief here because his simple point is that where God is at work, man's rejection of the truth comes to nothing. When God calls with his special call, there is no standing out. And so he comes to the third point, the gospel admired. Unto us who are called of God, the power of God, and the wisdom of God is this gospel. And this, he says, is a matter of pure experience between your souls and God. He wants us to know. Now, he recognizes that sometimes we struggle with assurance. But he says that you should know and you can know that you are made alive in Jesus Christ. He recognizes on the one hand that there are times of distress and perhaps even doubt about our standing, but he says every Christian at some point knows that they have been made alive. How can you pass from death to life and not know it? How can you be brought out of darkness into marvelous light and be ignorant of that? And so he says that we should have some experimental or experiential acquaintance with Christ in salvation, that we should have at least moments or seasons when we are confident that God has saved us through his power and wisdom in Christ Jesus. And it's a mercy then to know that it is Christ who is saving us. It's a mercy, he says, to know that it is not your hold of Christ that saves, but his hold of you. And he wants you then to see in Christ both the power and the wisdom of God. And while he says that the gospel is a thing of power, he wants us to understand that it is Christ who is the gospel who reveals the power of God. And he describes how the believer perceives the power in the gospel. It breaks us down. It convinces us of sin. It makes us acknowledge our need of a saviour. 
it draws us to Christ and then it sends us from Christ. It emboldens us. It strengthens us. It opens our hearts and our hands. It carries us even to death itself, whether that's the martyr's death or a quiet death in a quiet room. It is Christ crucified that gives us grace to face that death with courage and with peace. And he's running out of time and space. So he goes on to say that don't forget that Christ is also to those who are called the wisdom of God. He says the gospel is the sum of wisdom, an epitome of knowledge, a treasure house of truth and a revelation of mysterious secrets. In it we see how justice and mercy may be married. Here we behold inexorable law entirely satisfied and sovereign love bearing away the sinner in triumph. As we consider Christ and him crucified, we see all the attributes of God both magnified and harmonized. There we understand that with Christ crucified at the center, things begin to make sense. And he says, once you've got Christ there at the center, you've got a shelf in your head for everything. You know how to organize what you know because it is organized around Christ and him crucified, the most excellent of sciences, who is the very wisdom of God. And he says, make sure then that you know that that is what matters. Make sure that Christ is at the very core of your thinking and your understanding. The scripture's light is our illumination. And with that, we become more wise than Plato, more truly learned than the seven sages of iniquity. And Spurgeon now turns back to the unbeliever, to the people whom he has described earlier on as falling into the category of either the Jew or the Greek. And he wants them to understand that having spoken to them of two classes of persons who reject Christ, the religionist who has a religion of form and nothing else, and the man of the world who calls our gospel foolishness, that you have to ask yourself the question, am I one of those two gentlemen? If you are, he says, then walk the earth in all your pride, then go as you came in, but know that for all this the Lord shall bring thee into judgment. Know thou that thy joys and delights shall vanish like a dream and like the baseless fabric of a vision be swept away forever. So now he's pressing home these realities. He's saying, if you walk away the way you walked in, then you need to understand that your power, your wisdom, your notions of religion, your understanding of truth is going to let you down. And one day, even in hell itself, that you will come to understand what was held out to you and what you turned away from. And he cries out to God. And again, this is very typical of Spurgeon. He seems to be not just in a conversation with men in the pulpit, but a conversation with God as well. He's got this pressing sense of spiritual reality. Good God, he cries out, let not these men still reject and despise Christ, but let this be the time when they shall be called. He wants them to come now to Christ. 
He realizes his own powerlessness, despite the fact that he has painted these pictures for them of their own heart's condition. He's warning them that if they turn away now from Christ, that they shall be lost. And he's pleading with God to have mercy upon them. And then just a word to those who do believe. And he's urging us to go ever deeper into this glorious doctrine of Christ and him crucified. He says, the longer you live, the more you understand, the deeper you you go, the more completely you grasp these things, you will see ever more of the power and the wisdom of God. And asks then, may, may every blessing rest upon you. Spurgeon communicates so effectively the yearnings of his heart for the people to whom he is preaching. He has this profound sense of, of his proper calling, the dignity and responsibility of it as a preacher of the gospel. And he's pleading both with the unconverted to face the facts of their transgressions and come to Jesus Christ and with God's people to grasp the privileges of their salvation and to enter ever more deeply into the power and the wisdom of God. And that's a good thing for us to remember as we leave this sermon for now, that these things do not lie on the surface of our lives and they should never lie on the surface of a sermon, that it is good for preachers to communicate and for those who hear them to understand the profound concern and regard that the preacher has for the souls of those to whom he preaches. Spurgeon preaches as Richard Baxter would have said, as a dying man to dying men and never like to preach again. He presses it home. To him, the, this gentleman, the Jew, and this gentleman, the Greek, they're not mere ciphers. They're not abstract notions. They're the men and the women who are in front of him. And yet, by the great power of God in salvation, the Jew and the Greek can both be humbled. And what was before to them a stumbling block and a laughing stock becomes both the power and the wisdom of God. It's a beautiful sermon. It's so simple in its outline. It's so penetrating It's in its instruction. Yes, it seems very straightforward, but when God the Holy Spirit uses such straightforward speech, such a simple outline and such apparently obvious things, then sinners are indeed called to him and they see in Christ and him crucified what was before a stumbling block, now to be divine power, and what was before foolishness, now to be divine wisdom, and all for the salvation of sinners like us.